Did you know that over 60,000 new tracks are uploaded to Spotify every single day? That's a new track every 1.4 seconds, and that's just on one platform. With so much music now available, it's more important than ever to stand out from the crowd. So it's not surprising that more artists are starting to use less conventional sonic textures in their music, like field recordings. Perhaps you've always wanted to infuse the sounds of nature or your favourite city into your own tracks, but not having the right gear or knowledge might have held you back. Well, if that's the case, you're going to love the brand new guide I just created, teaching you how to start field recording with just a smartphone. And it's all yours for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel. Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level. Hey, knob twiddlers. I'm thrilled to share that season three of the Girls Twiddling Knobs podcast is sponsored by the lovely folks at Isotope. Now, Isotope design award-winning audio plugins, and I'm actually using some of the fabulous tools inside their RX9 software to get my voice sounding crystal clear inside today's episode. And when you use the code GIRLSPOD10, you'll get 10% off any plugin purchase on their site, excluding subscriptions and a whole free month of their amazing Music Production Suite Pro instead of the standard seven-day trial. Just go to isotope.com forward slash girlspod to find out more. I was openly gay the whole time. So I felt like I connected a lot with other people who were queer or it even affected my relationships with my male colleagues because although some people were still dickheads about comments and stuff, I do feel like I got treated a bit differently because I wasn't able to be objectified in the same way that my cis het straight like female colleagues were as well and i i do think that changed my experience of the music industry a bit hello and welcome to girls twiddling knobs my name's isabel and over the last decade my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million spotify streams i also have a phd in sonic arts but i wasn't always this confident with music tech In fact, I still hear those self-doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female-identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Are you ready to find your perfect vocal mic? but don't fancy spending hours trawling the internet. Believe me, I get it. One mic review says one thing, while another says something else entirely. Until, before you know it, you've got 20 tabs open on your internet browser and still no idea which mic would actually suit your needs. But luckily for you, dear listener, I've done all the hard work for you and created a free quiz that will match you up with your perfect vocal mic. Inside, I take you through some specific questions that will only take you 45 seconds. On the other side, as well as your perfect vocal mic, you'll get a free bonus video teaching you how to properly position your mic made by yours truly. 
Just go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz to find out more and take the quiz. That's femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz and get ready to find the vocal mic of your dreams. Now on with today's episode, dear listener, and I am delighted to introduce songwriter, producer and musical director Charlie Deacon Davies to Girls Twiddling Knobs. At the young age of 26, they've already been an in-house songwriter and producer for Gary Barlow, won numerous prestigious awards and gained an enviable reputation in the UK recording industry. And when I got to sit down with Charlie, not only did they share their journey into music production as a 17-year-old and the incredible opportunities they've had, but they also shared how challenging it's been as someone who both isn't straight or cisgendered. So what follows in this week's episode is not only an exploration of Charlie's career to date and their role as a music producer, but also their experiences as a non-binary musician, which led to them co-founding an exciting new project called the Trans Creative Collective. I think you'll hear in our chat that Charlie's a pretty special person because not only do they have such a love of music, but they're also passionate about connecting with others too. So without further ado, let's meet Charlie. Welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs, Charlie. Hello, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) It's a pleasure. I'm so glad to have you on. I mean, we've got loads to talk about, which I'm really excited about, but maybe you could just start off by telling the listeners who you are and what you do. Amazing. So my name is Charlie Deacon Davis and I'm a record producer and songwriter. And in the past year or so, I've delved a bit more into live sound and musical direction and just having a bit more of a hands-on role in, in some projects outside of the studio, which I've been really enjoying. Fantastic. Okay. Well, hopefully we can hear a little bit more about what all that entails, but maybe we could start off by you just telling us how did you get into music and in particular, how did you get into music production? Well, I think my journey is quite similar to a lot of people, really, which is classic, like you're in a band and you want to do music and you go into the recording studio and then you're like, oh, wow, this is like amazing, which is definitely how I got into it. I was in like this ukulele folk band when I was like a teenager and when I was like 15, 16, we ended up getting to work with like these amazing studios and we're actually working with major labels. And I then just got this glimpse into this magical world of studio work and I was just like this is the coolest thing ever because I was such a nerd so for me that was like where the love of it really like exploded (laughs) oh wow and so how long did it take before you're like I want to learn more about this and do this as a job well I started recording my band's demos which then got me into it. And then I started recording, like, when I say my own stuff, I don't mean, like, my artist project. I was just sort of recording things that I was doing just so I could practice, like, learning how to do it. So it kind of started out like that probably when I was about 17, but it quickly turned into me doing it, like, as a profession. Because, um, I mean, the reality is, for me, I was really lucky because that particular journey was really short. Mm-hmm. From the moment that, like, I decided I want to do it to when I was actually doing it was by the second thing I ever recorded. Wow. Um, yeah. So like the first EP I did, I did for free and it was for a folk artist that was on the scene and I just recorded five tracks for her 
and I was just like this is really good to like get experience outside of like projects I'm working and I mean a really big thing about being a producer is actually your how well you are with clients it's not necessarily how good you are at music production it's like how comfortable do you make a person feel and do you make them do the best performance they've ever done in their life because they have to because that is the recording of that song so I think I think that's overlooked a lot when people are teaching music production like because they're obsessed with like the tech side of it which I am obsessed with but you need both but anyway the second thing I then produced was an artist called Kelly Oliver and it was a five track EP and I was about 18 when I did that and one of the tracks on that ended up getting played on BBC Radio 2 which then made me one of the youngest producers to ever have a track on BBC Radio 2 and this is the second thing I had done wow So it, it it kind of spiraled out quite quickly from that point because then I was like, oh, I actually like I'm not terrible at this, or at least it gave me a pseudo sense that I didn't think I was terrible at it. And I carried on accumulating lots of clients like that and the classic like converting the shed at the bottom of the garden into a studio. And I would just bring like local folk artists in that I'd find at open mics or word of mouth and we built that up that way really and and I just got so many credits because I just produced so many acoustic artists like in that little patch wow yeah that's great wow so it it really sounds like it was very organic for you yeah definitely I mean a, a massive factor in which you know this is where I'm so lucky is like my mum basically just loved what I was doing and really supported it and loved the music that I was working on and so she decided as mums do I guess to set up a record label called Folkstock um so we had this like little system where like she'd find an artist that she'd really like she'd see if I liked them if I did they'd get sent down to the bottom of the garden we would record an EP or an album with them and then I'd send them back up to the house as in not obviously in one day but like the the, the concept and then she would then promote the EP or album so oh. it worked really well like as a fluid motion so I, I feel very lucky that that was yeah yeah that's a very unique setup isn't it mm, that's definitely. wonderful yeah And so you went from, you know, having the studio at the bottom of the garden. What did that look like? How did you put that together? Was it quite DIY or? Hugely DIY. Yeah, It was like, I guess like a bit of a games room or something. I think it was meant to like, it was, I don't know, like, I think we were meant to turn it into like a, a family room or something like that. So the walls were actually like bright purple and yellow with a red carpet. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was <laughs> vibrant. <laughs> I wonder how much like that headache. It was it was a lot. It was a lot. Also there was no it was wasn't insulated and it was just whatever the weather was outside was the weather it was inside. Yeah. You know? And I had yeah, yeah. I had guitars in there. That was probably really bad for them. <laughs> They're still in there, half of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the it it was quite a step from going and, and working in the sh- in the in the den, I called it. So then I, I got a job working at a studio called Sound Lab Studios in London and that was a nice stepping stone for me to start working at bigger studios but I also worked at Cream Room Studios as well when I was I actually worked there when I was 17 as a producer because Martin Lumsden such a legend he saw what I was doing with the demos and stuff that I've been working on he thought I was really good so he asked me to come work in on a project um at the studio so I ended up working there for a while as yeah as a producer not like as a tea person you know (laughs) like so I I feel lucky they've had people that sort of Mm. really believe in me but then when I was I think actually just before I started working at Sound Lab I was really yeah it was really epic I, I I won the um the NMG award for producer of the year 
which then really like set in stone like a lot of things for me and um just before that as well i did a project with laura marling as well so this is i've done this very like chaotically describing what happened here but just like lots of things kind of clustered for me between the ages of like 18 and 21 i feel yeah. like there's a real like boom of like when i did a lot of stuff yeah i mean it's it, you know they always say with with anything like music it's kind of a lot of it's hard work and then a lot of it's luck mm. and it seems like you have a lot of kind of really lucky breaks that came with you know it's not just about talent and the hard work it's the pe- right people being around and spotting you and giving you chances and yeah so what a wonderful way to get into production yeah I definitely I think I I I do look at what has happened in my career and I definitely attribute a huge aspect to that to luck because it just is like there's no there's no other way about it but I I would say that also the other element of it is like you can only make the most of a lucky situation if you're if you're prepared and if you're skilled enough mm-hmm. like I felt I, I was so lucky but also at the same time I spent like every waking hour doing music and doing production and the reason I ended the Laura Marling thing was be- because I was like really keen bean and I joined the MPG when I was 17 and maybe the young I think I might have still be the youngest like member like or whatever to have joined and that then led on to the Laura Marling thing and that's because I'd always tried to go to events but again I was lucky because I lived in Hertfordshire which is really close to London huh. and my mum wasn't making me pay rent where I lived and you know like yeah you know there's so, there's so many layers to it but I, I just love the the graft and the energy that you put in because you can see the output out of it so that you yeah you can make the most of the lucky situations that you mm, get given. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I completely agree. It's like you have to have the talent and the hard work to get those lucky opportunities. And then you ha- then have to meet those lucky opportunities with talent and hard work as well. So mm. it's like a <laughs> talent and hard work sandwich with lucky yeah. in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. So so then we're we're at kind of 21 now I think Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> what happens then? <laughs> Cuz I don't even know how old you are. I mean you don't have to tell me, but where are we in in correlation to present day at 21? I'm 26 now. Okay, okay. We've got a little bit to go. We've got a little bit to go. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I th- I think um after a lot of sort of these random opportunities and a lot of working on a lot of tracks, I think I on it I, I think I had got like 50 release tracks by the time I was 21 of like just output after output of like I'd either written or produced them or both wow. um, working with people. And I know, and and, and it's, it was so weird. And like uh, quite a few of them had won awards as well for like the various things that were doing. So it just, it, there was just like such a momentum and it, it felt amazing. And then I won the NMG award for producer of the year again the next year. And then I won so this is like this is clustering a tiny bit like I think I think I must have won the NMG award in 2017 so that must have made me like 22 or something and then when I was 23 I then won the uh, European Pro Sound Award for Breakthrough Studio Engineer as well so I had like this like huge cluster of things and then that's when I won uh, that's when I met Fraser T. Smith who if you know who that is like he's just a god in the music production songwriting world and he was working on Craig David's album and I was friends with, you know, Manon Grosjean. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Manon Grosjean is Fraser T. Smith's engineer. And they work on Craig David's album. And Gary Barlow was co-writing Craig David's album with Fraser T. Smith. And then Gary Barlow said to Manon, <laughs> sorry, it's such a complicated story. Do you know any writer-producers that use Logic, play guitar and write songs? And she was like, yeah, I do. 
So she set me up with an interview with Gary Barlow. I did the interview on the Friday, got the job on the Monday, and then just worked for him for two years in this private studio in Notting wow. Hill. <laughs> wow. I mean, just do you ever do you look back at your track in and just think how like how unusual that is? It, it just feels like it's, I don't know, maybe it doesn't feel like this for you, but it just feels like such a kind of fast and steady rise. I I think it it does and I would say that it has psychological impacts as I've got older because things still move fast but they don't move in the there was hype I I was like it was it was hype around me especially because I was so young and also although this is not how I identify as my gender now like I was identifying as a woman during that whole time and Mm -hmm. you know back in 2013 or whatever like being a female record producer was a big deal like as in when I was like yeah 15 16 and it, it's kind of I'd say it's only recently that it's it's more normalized now mm-hmm. that people aren't that surprised by it so I think there was a lot of things I mean even with the NMG awards in the long list of 30 people I was the only woman or the only non-man in that and then obviously the short list I was the only non-man and, and then I won <laughs> so it was like and that yeah. happened two years in a row <laughs> yeah and um, so what do you think and you know I know that if if you're anything like most British people, you won't want to blow your own trumpet. But what is it, do you think, about the way that you produce, the way that you work in the studio that meant that you did win those awards and you were getting that kind of hype around what you're doing? I don't know. I guess, like, I think I had an, an exceptionally high output, which I now retrospectively realise is an abnormal amount of tracks to have worked on. So I think that was, I think, an absolute blatantly naive confidence, Yeah, I think, uh, massively contributed <laughs> to it. That now I'm like, God, how did I have that, like, <laughs> the energy to be that confident all the time? Yeah. Like, you know, but, it, but it's, I, I, I think maybe an element of it, I don't know, is I just loved it so much mm-hmm. that it was like, I... I I think this is the thing about like being an AFAB person, like someone who's assigned female. Mm-hmm. I think you're always so worried about being arrogant. Mm-hmm. And that was something that really still hangs with me now. Like I hate the thought of being portrayed as arrogant. And even in this in this interview right now, I feel like I've come across a bit arrogant. No, you haven't. Um, <laughs> no, you haven't at all. Like you're clearly really brilliant at what you do. <laughs> and you're just sharing your journey. That's fine. <laughs> but I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's it's a weird it's a weird space but I I think that in the heart of it I just had I, and I still do just have an excite such an excitement around it that I want to make sure I'm at every event I want to make sure I'm doing every project I want to make sure I'm doing it to the highest of my ability and that I'm never letting anyone down so I think it was that sort of extra energy that I had that I now feel like I've got again that I feel like I lost Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like with some of the new projects that I'm working on, I, I, I feel the feeling I had when I was 21 and I was so excited to do music production. Mm-hmm. It's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you spent two years with Gary Barlow. I mean, I'm going to have to ask, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> if all the listeners are going to be thinking, okay, what was that like? Well, it was just, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing, honestly, like, especially to have an opportunity like that. Like he had just bought this, like three-story building in Notting Hill that he converted into a studio and 
the downstairs was like the main this is also you can find this on his social media he does like a walkthrough i'm not like giving like private information okay. of his studio okay. um <laughs> come and come for the podcast yeah <laughs> um, yeah you can find all of this online yeah um okay. But the downstairs, he turned into like this really specked out, amazing studio. And on the next floor, there was a conference room and his main studio. And then on the next floor, there was like a kitchen and then another conference room studio thing. And then when I joined the team, they didn't necessarily know that they were going to have like another producer engineer. He just decided he wanted one. So then I joined the team and there just wasn't a space for me. And he just said I could just kit out the conference room directly next to his room into a studio. So I wow. just got given free reign to just like build a studio, like buy guitars, oh buy equipment, like everything. So wow. he, he didn't have any guitars. So like I brought my own. But yeah, it was just it was like a fantasy, like to just yeah. get to build a studio. And it was it was literally next to his studio. So I was like right next to him. So my kind of job there was. I, t- I think I was production assistant, I think was my title, but I don't know, it was a bit ambiguous. I did like loads of stuff. Like, you know, the reality is whenever you take a job on, you kind of do lots of things. You mm-hmm. don't just do one thing. So I would like play the guitars and bass on his tracks. I would do like additional production, just work on, we worked on so many different projects, but then also what I would do is I'd also songwrite because like being a songwriter is a really core aspect of everything that I have done. It's just that production, I think, is I've just done more product. I don't even think I have done more production. I don't know. Just being a producer is the thing that often gets t- talked about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I ended up like writing with him, and not that many people actually write with Gary, and I didn't know that. Like he's he's pretty insular, and he's a really good writer. Like uh-huh. the, the amount of songs he would come in in the mornings and just write songs. Like for, and we'd come in like a couple of hours later, and he's already written like a couple of songs for the day. Like he just mm. he just he, they just they just leak out of him so I I got to work on that and then I ended up actually writing and well co-writing and producing one of the tracks on his album and then the album went to number one <laughs> wow that's amazing <laughs> so yeah which track is that is that the one that's on your playlist Charlie yeah it yeah. is then what about yeah. getting drunk let's get drunk <laughs> <laughs> the irony is I didn't drink until I was 25 like I <laughs> So, like, I even wrote that when I, like, didn't drink. So it's quite funny. <laughs> oh, that's so wicked, though. I mean, that must have been an amazing moment. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it, it's interesting, like, on advice in the industry and things like this. And people did warn me what it's like to work on such high-caliber mm-hmm. stuff. And I think, again, with my, like, blazoned confidence... I thought, oh, that stuff's not going to affect me. I've already done all of these things. Like, I've already done stuff. But the reality is, even though I had won awards and I'd worked on stuff, I hadn't really worked with famous people. Or, or like, you know, I hadn't worked with major record labels. I'd been working with a lot of independent artists. It is just completely different. Uh-huh. And nothing can, can can prepare you for what it is like and what is demanded of you. Like my job wasn't meant to be 24-7, but it was. I was on call at any moment. If Gary needed something, I was expect like anyone in the team was just expected to do it. And I don't think that's specific to Gary. I think that's yeah. just when you're working on such high pressure stuff, it's like it needs to be done. And if you don't do it, someone else is going to do it or the project is just going to be lost. So like that I think has been an incredibly valuable skill for me. But my my advice to anyone that, hasn't maybe worked with really high profile people before and and they're about to is like you just you have to accept that your life is about to be someone else's for the time period in which you're working for them it is not your life you are a tool for that person 
and you will learn stuff that there, it is impossible for you to learn outside of that environment and mm. you'll go away with it feeling a bit like not good but then you will realize like how valuable that skill was and whether or not you even want to continue perpetuating that style or if you find ways that you could do it better and also you then can recognize those traits in people and you can recognize what people are expecting of you and you can set boundaries with that but I honestly don't think any amount of advice can possibly prepare you for what it is like to work Mm -hmm. in those environments yeah yeah because it's so different to anything that you'll have experienced before I imagine because I haven't worked Mm. with any you know high profile artists or high profile you know major record labels and I can only imagine that it would would be totally different from indie artists and indie labels. Mm. And and I think you make a good point though Charlie that you know on the one hand what you're saying you know you have to accept that you you will just be at the beck and call of this machine effectively but that you will learn so much and yeah. you know there'll be there will be things that you come out the other side having learned that you would never learn anywhere else but what I also kind of think is that I, I think it's a it does shed some light on why so many uh, particularly you know women and AFAB people have found it difficult to be in the industry because when it's that all-consuming and you're 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 relying on people to respect boundaries to you know respect your your boundaries, your wishes, your autonomy, all that stuff. And in that kind of environment, it, those lines can get a bit blurred, can't they? Mm, hugely. I think also it's difficult to sometimes recognise, is this person doing this because I'm their assistant or are they would they be treating the male male assistant the same way? Yeah. And sadly, and this isn't just specific to mine, but I just recognized it because obviously I then worked with a lot of other people's assistants and like, mm. you know, like I, I worked with lots of people during that time and I still do. I would be lying if I said that the people who were assigned female aren't treated a bit more harshly or more as expected of them than the male counterparts, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is not news. No. Know. No. <laughs> no. But, you know, it, it is also interesting how many people will be in denial of that too mm. you know and I think it is always always important to say it and to call it out and especially someone in your position where you've been there firsthand in those very commercial music industry environments mm. um for sure I think so, this again is not specific to the GB camp but mm. something I just recognized that happened across the board but I just happened to be in employment in that place during this time I personally like transitioned I guess whilst I was working there right uh the like the last quarter of my time there mm-hmm. and but before that I was like experimenting with different looks and different outfits and things like that and I noticed a level of confusion and arguably disapproval for my aesthetic appearance because I was the person who greeted people when they came in and I was hired as this bubbly blonde who wore makeup and tight tops and like whatever and turned to this fuck this like scroggy gremlin with a mullet and like purple hair and like wearing like baggy t-shirts you know like yeah so they're like this is not what we signed up for honey yeah (laughs) like and I noticed Mm -hmm. I noticed that they became uncomfortable about some things because they didn't know how to comment on it I would mm. still argue that my outfits were, in fact, was like more professional than my male counterparts, but just mm. less was expected of them aesthetically. Mm-hmm. That I really felt a energy around my appearance that mm. I felt was unnecessary, but I could understand where it came from. 
Yeah. Like, it doesn't mean it was right. <laughs> yeah. But then, no, that is interesting to know. And, I mean, have you found since transitioning that there's been a difference in the way people will treat you in the studio? Hugely. Okay. Well, I, it's hard to actually say that it's because of the transition directly. I would say it's more subtle than that. I mm. Also, just for the listeners, I changed my name from a more feminine name to Charlie, which is obviously a bit more ambiguous. And I use they, them pronouns and identify as non-binary, where before mm. I identified as a woman using she, her pronouns. But I would say that the the biggest energy is more that like I feel so much more comfortable with myself that I think that just exudes out in general. So people are just less anxious or perceive me as potentially more confident. Mm-hmm. And then the other side of it as well is like I now now when I interact with people, they know me as someone who has worked with major record labels, who has had various accolades. So it's hard to know if, it, if that would have changed whether or not I had changed, like had transitioned or not versus just I am older and I have more experience. It's, it's hard to weigh yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So you worked for Gary Barlow for two years and then um, what? where did you go after that? Well, I, I kind of preempted that I knew I was leaving. I was very, mm-hmm. very lucky again. God, this is called like Charlie's Lucky Broadcast or something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I was only hired to work with Gary for a year and uh-huh. my contract was meant to end with him March 2020. Right. <laughs> but... March 2020 rolled around and the pandemic hit and then mm-hmm. Gary just kept me on through the whole pandemic bearing in mind I wasn't expected to go to the studio I wasn't expected to work it was just really confusing he just kept me on a rolling salary oh wow which is really generous of him yeah to have done yeah good old GB yeah it was it was it was very weird I mean a whole other tangent of something that I ended up doing which is just so not my life it's just so weird I ended up living in Notting Hill for the time I worked there because I don't know if you know this but Gary Barlow sung on the Lion King soundtrack no I didn't know that you know that yeah because he's friends with um Tim Rice who Mm -hmm. if you know who Tim Rice is uh wrote everything all the lyrics for anything that Andrew Lloyd Webber did for anyone that didn't know who he is so you know Lion King Phantom of the Opera like Jesus Christ Superstar like all of these absolutely huge musicals so Gary is friends with his daughter Eva Rice who's a best-selling author and she was working on a project and she needed a producer for it and then Gary said oh God, just take Charlie for a week. So I just got like hired out and I just took my <laughs> studio equipment and just set it up in Eva's house, which was literally down the road. And then I was working there and then I have been commuting from Walthamstow to Notting Hill, which if anyone knows London, that's like quite a big commute. So I just said to Eva, oh, do you know anyone that's like looking for a lodger that I could potentially like do? This was on like the Tuesday. I met I met her on the Monday and she was like, oh, I am. <laughs> do you want to live here? My daughter's going to boarding school. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. okay. So then I moved in on the Saturday and moved into this townhouse in Notting Hill with oh Eva Rice's family, which was Tim Rice's house at one point. So it just has all of this stuff on the wall, like all the Lion King posters, like all of the things. It's just like, it was wild. So I lived there for like a year and a half. But I lived there during the pandemic as well, as well as living with this other family. Sorry, but the reason that was relevant is like, it was really weird because I technically lived in Notting Hill, but then I lived somewhere else. But then Gary was, I was still employed by Gary, but I wasn't working for him. It was, it was just, it was as everyone I'm sure experienced, it was just really confusing time. Like the first half of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then in February, 2021, 
I did actually end up like my contract ended officially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I managed to stay on for a whole extra year. And then during that time, I'd set up a lot of writing sessions and working with because obviously like I guess I had a few credits now like and people were interested so then I ended up doing a lot of writing sessions and everything but then I think it, again I feel like a lot of people went on the same cycle here like I like burn out horrifically mm-hmm. by like the summer mm-hmm. loads of festivals got cancelled as well as and it was just like really bad so I, I actually just like took two months off completely because I just psychologically couldn't handle what had been mm-hmm happening um and it took me a while to get back into the swing of it and then i ended up um working with this band called second thoughts who i'm now like really heavily involved with and i Uh I love their music Uh Um, and that's partly because during the pandemic the person's house i was staying at was the bassists so right ended up like getting to um work with that band a lot and that then led me on to like this whole other pool of people I don't know how far you want me to go with the description here. I'm just like, I'm just rolling <laughs> off. Like, oh my God, it's such a long answer. Yeah. No, no, no. It's just really, it's really good to know like where you're at now and, um, you know, and, and how you've got to where you are. So I know that you work out of a, a studio complex now, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that 1087? Yeah, it's 1087. Yeah. So, so got, can you I've tell got... us a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's so great here. So I work out of this yeah, the, the studio complex is called 1087. I share it with two other people, um, Rooks and uh, Jess. I share it with them, and that's my base of operations. But as I said at the beginning, I now am working in the live sector a bit more, hmm. which has been so fun, and do musical direction, which is just like so fun because it's like producing but live. <laughs> yeah. So can you can you describe that role? Because you know some people listening won't know what that means. Hmm. So basically, um, what what my role as a musical director kind of encompasses is an uh, an act will come with, come to me and they'll have like a set of songs that they want to play, but it won't be in like a set or whatever. And I'll go through with them and we'll listen to all of the songs and we'll listen to the live vari- versions of them and everything. And we'll pick like what is the most fluid way to make that set work live. And then we'll work on the transitions between those songs. Maybe you maybe you make a medley out of two of them. Maybe you blur them together. Maybe you make a new new instrumental to go between something. Maybe you change the arrangement of it so that it fits cool. Because like say for instance, if you were going to see Dua Lipa live, it's not just a press play and you're listening to the album or like a Spotify playlist. It's you know you have all the instrumentals, you have the big moments, you have the pyro, you have the lighting, you have like dance sections, and a musical director is the person that basically picks when all those moments in the set are going to happen and how the flow of a show works and where the breaks are and, you know, different things like that. So I do that, but also a musical director can also do something called playback, which is a lot of people don't know what playback is. And it's like the, the pinnacle of like what is required in a live show. And that's basically the person that runs all the backing tracks and that, yeah, so that's called playback. So I've been doing a bit of playback as well because obviously as a music producer, it's a pretty transferable skill. Like I already know how to make yeah. all the software work and use all of the, the stems and everything. Um, and then you just have to like, you know, make your own rig and then work out how you're going to do that live for an artist. And and that's a very high pressure job, honestly, because mm-hmm. if you mess that up, the show's messed up, but mm-hmm. it's a really important one and it's really good. And I'd recommend anyone who is listening to this that is interested in doing live stuff and is a producer they are struggling. There is no, there's like hardly any playback text, and they're like really sought after. So if you're if you're interested in live sound and mm. music production, you should get into doing playback tech stuff. It's really that's a good tip. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun. It's so fun. You get to go on tour with artists. You get to see all these shows. Like, 
you know it's it's a, it's yeah. a really good skill yeah and I can really see how the other aspects of being a musical director really kind of have a lot of synergy with your background in production as well because obviously mm. you, you're having to kind of understand how things flow and the form that something has to take and the moments of yeah like the attention grabbing moments the moments where things need to kind of calm down and take a back seat and yeah lots of transferable skills there from your other role in the production yeah so I was just wanted to kind of get a picture then when it comes to working in the studio what does that look day to day because we've we've spoken on the podcast to a lot of people who are artists that produce themselves or mm-hmm. people that work as, you know, an engineer or sound artist. But it'd be really good to get a sense of what's the day-to-day life of a producer, Charlie? Well, I feel like everyone has a different journey. So if I was going to, like, take today, I yeah. started the day, I opened up a project that I was mixing that I needed to work on. I then had someone come around for a meeting in which they were also doing mixed reviews on some of the stuff that I was doing. Then I carried on mixing. I then personally had to start doing loads of graphic design work for a different project that like is still relevant to like my production and everything. Then I had two meetings about like clients I'm working with, directed someone else to get the mastering track, sorted out another person's mastering track, carried on mixing again today. Obviously now doing the podcast and I'm going to carry on mixing at the end of this, have another meeting with somebody else. So like it depends if I've got a client in versus tomorrow I'm doing a songwriting session. So I'll probably come in at about 10 and then they'll come about midday so I'll spend the morning prepping other projects that I'm working on and things like that then we'll spend the day like writing and producing a song and then I'll probably be going off to a show tomorrow evening so this kind of, but that are the days that I have my studio the days I don't have my studio is for instance like on Thursday um, I'm going to go to a, another production studio where we're going to be doing the live pre-production rehearsals for festival season for an act I'm working with and I'm going to be the MD there and we've got like a full crew in on that one where we've got like a vocal coach a drum coach guitar tech and me all there and we're just going to rip the show to shreds and be like this, this is how we're going to so I'm personally someone who really likes lots of different things in my day but yeah music production for me like I, th- I think I'm I think I dart around things quite a lot and I also had this other realization the other day it's like I always forget to mention this but do you remember Balcony TV yes yeah so I was the producer for Balcony TV for two years oh uh, wow really London. yeah I just <laughs> I forgot to mention that um yeah. And what was required of me on that day is I would have to set up, like set up in like 10 minutes, like for each act, do a line check, not even a sound check, like a line check. And then I would have to record it. They would do it in one take and an interview. So like everything had to be right. And then I had to mix everything. We might do like 10 acts in a day in two days. I had to mix everything for release for the TV show. It's like, and so I think that's partly, and I did that from when I was like, maybe like, 19 or like 19 20 I couldn't drive you know I could drive I don't know like I think I was like 19 or something I did that for two years alongside like all of the other projects I was working on so I think I really like built up a momentum of learning how to do things fast during that time yeah yeah and I know like when we were speaking when we're preparing for chatting today you're saying that you know one of the things about when you are working especially at that kind of more industry commercial level is that you have to be so quick Mm. in the studio hugely I mean it was quite interesting I w- I've been working I work with like a lot of variety of like engineers and different producers and stuff and I was working with an engineer that wanted to do more music production 
And we were doing a session and usually I'm the producer and they're the engineer. But I was like, I'm going to let them have a bit more space to do production to, and not over dominate that sort of section. And then afterwards, the client spoke to me and was sort of like, I didn't realize like how fast I was, as in like how fast Charlie was. And they were like, that person was really slow. And it, I found it quite difficult to get into the flow of the session because like I kept having to stop and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah, I recognized that that was what was happening. Um, and then I spoke to them afterwards and I was just sort of like, I would say my number one piece of advice for music production is to be fast. You need to preempt what that person needs before they even have had to ask for it. Because if they had to ask for it, it means they've had to change their flow of their creativity to try and do it. Like you are, you are a tool to help their music like go into the world. Like you are a vessel for them, basically. And I I think that when you are used to doing bedroom production or spending ages trying to find that perfect snare sound or whatever, you realize that when you're doing creative music production and songwriting that that is you've just you're, you're going to lose the energy doing that you're actually going to make the project worse by mm. being with the client and spending time doing that so it's about having stuff pre-prepared ready that you know sounds good before you're even going into the session like you've already picked your snare sounds you've already picked like a set of you know uh, like your bass lines or tones or preamp settings that you know you're going to use so that it's just a matter of just dropping in for the session and making it work mm. but the key is also it has to be high quality like you can't you can't be fast and sloppy or if you're going to be sloppy about it you need to know how to edit really well yeah i would say my approach was that i was fast and got good at editing Mm -hmm. rather than fast and good at i think you can't be i think you do have to it's like a whole triangle of like you know what i can't remember what it's called but like the payoff triangle or whatever like you can't have all three points yeah yeah kind of thing so I think for me I chose fast and good at editing rather than slow high quality but bad at editing yeah you know what I mean like yeah yeah Yeah, Um, and it's knowing where you can make those compromises isn't it in the mm. moment but you'll be able to recover them later on when you're editing all things that you cannot compromise on because if you get if you get a bad raw recording you'll never be able to claw it back in editing Mm -hmm. and sort of learning that as you go too yeah definitely I mean yeah Learning mic positions made a huge difference to me. Mm-hmm. I have I have zero education. Like I have never, ever been taught how to do this. So it was all trial and error. And I do listen back to, obviously everyone does. You listen back to your old stuff and you, you cringe at it. But I think <laughs> yeah. it's quite funny looking at it. And I can see, for instance, like when I started changing my compression settings or when I started changing my mic positions or whatever. And it's like, I can see this like clarity that starts to shine through. Like mm. even a project I'm mixing, like that's like literally up right now. I just revisited for th- th- from three weeks ago and I can already hear how much better I am at this particular style of mixing mm. than I was three weeks ago because the project got, re- the track got rejected and it was just a demo, but they decided that they actually want to use that demo again. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I sent that off. Like, yeah. I should, like you know, <laughs> yeah, it's so, yeah, it's so weird. And you, you have to just accept that you're always going to have done bad things like in yes. your sonics. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a great point because I know that so many, I think particularly women you know and AFAB people listening and just in the industry will worry so much about getting things right in production and recording because there's so much there's there's that feeling of being so obviously out of place you know Mm -hmm. and so this feeling like oh everyone's gonna know that I've made a mistake everyone's gonna watch me you know effing this up but um 
I know that something else you're saying is it's really important to not be focusing on getting things right and wrong when it comes to production. Yeah. You, you, you just are going to get it wrong. Like, Mm. and the same way that you are going to get it right. Like there's stuff that I'm like, I can't believe is out that I've worked on that. Mm. I'm like, that could have been better. But if that project was never put out, I would have never have got better. And I yeah. think so many people get stuck in the stalemate of of not releasing stuff because they're worried it's not good enough. And it, you just literally can't progress. It's it's literally just slowing you down. You spending longer with unreleased tracks does not make you better, in my opinion. No, I agree. I agree. And then also what happens is then your life moves on and then you you kind of listen to those tracks. So you play those tracks and you're like, oh, they, they don't feel like me anymore, but you haven't mm. released them. So then you're like, but I can't move on until I release those tracks. And I agree, it can become the stalemate. And, and I think there's so many other qualities that are so important about in a producer, apart from knowing every single make and model of various mics and plugins. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, maybe you could talk about some of those more holistic skills that you need as a producer, Charlie. Yeah, well, I think... I would say only in the past year if I if I even began to learn make and models of things like and that's actually just because I now have feel like I have capacity to learn it but like mm-hmm. it's still non-essential I don't think I think I think I touched on it earlier in, in the podcast but like the reality is being a producer is helping that person do the best performance of their entire life of that song it has to be the best recording ever and to get someone to do the best recording ever is to make sure they are the most comfortable they've ever been in their life or to make it the most like make the make the studio a stage if you need to make mm-hmm. anything the environment that helps the artist and and don't try change what the artist is doing because your your equipment or your skills don't match up to it just adapt what you have to match what the artist needs because i honestly the amount of clients i work with or especially when i was younger and working with a lot of like young female artists they would come to me and they'd be like, oh my God, it's the first time I've been allowed to play guitar in the session. Or like, oh, it's the first time I feel like I've been listened to. And it would just like break my heart, like knowing that. And like, and I just have like, it wasn't even an intentional thing that is like a rule of thumb that I do. But I'm like, if the artist can play an instrument, I even even if in theory I could play it better, I'm still going to get them to play it because it's their song, you know? Like, unless they specifically ask me to do something, I'm never going to, like, suggest to do it over their own ability to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just, it's just really upsetting. Yeah, because obviously that song has evolved through their relationship with that instrument, potentially, mm. you know, and that's a very special connection. And, and to rip that out of the recording is potentially going to totally change what it means to that artist. Yeah, it's so true. Even even um like a, a, a tips and tricks. If an artist is used to playing with an playing with a guitar when they sing and do their vocal performance, and you find that when they're just doing the vocal take, they keep forgetting the song or they're just not comfortable doing it, hand them a guitar and just put like a like a scarf around it or something so it doesn't make sound. Because then the problem is, is as soon as as soon as someone is used to singing holding a guitar, it means your chest is open, your your shoulders are out, your arms are open, you can sing more naturally. 
when you take the guitar, instantly they suck in and they're like their arms are crossed across their body and everything. And it's like, yeah. and then they don't sing and they can't remember and they don't have the pattern in their mind and like kind of thing. So yeah. I, I sometimes I'll give them a guitar so that they can just be back in their natural state again. And I don't, obviously don't record the guitar, but like, mm-hmm. and then their vocal performances are amazing because mm-hmm. they just, that's just how they're used to doing it. Yeah. No, yeah. it's it's all muscle memory, isn't it? Mm. And you're so right that when that guitar gets taken away, I mean, I, I know that for me, that that has always felt very strange to take that guitar away and it it feels like you know singing is an extent it's extended through that guitar Mm. feeling it's it's not even just about playing the guitar but it's like feeling the guitar on my body yeah there's something it's like an extension of my body and there's something very sort of grounding about that Mm. so I, I totally agree I think um and and I know that there are lots of um I've I've known a lot of women who have found the studio to not be necessarily kind of tailored uh, or not find people that want to um tailor what they're doing around them but more this is how the studio works love and deal with it (laughs) yeah I hate that yeah I I I feel like that has also there's I think there's the there's the women angle on that but like I would say another tier that I experienced because I I've been I was openly gay the whole time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I felt like I connected a lot with other people who were queer or even affected my relationships with my male colleagues because although some people were still dickheads about comments and stuff, I do feel like I got treated a bit differently because I wasn't able to be objectified in the same way that my cis het straight like female colleagues were as well. Yeah. And I I do think that, that changed my experience of the music industry a bit I would not say I, de- yeah. I definitely still experience like loads of like awful stuff but like yeah. awful maybe it's too strong I don't want to discourage people but like yeah the standard stuff that you experience being a woman you also mm-hmm. experience in the music industry <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah yeah no and but I also think that's a really good point to make that you know a lot of the time people will lump in women and gender minorities but those experiences are different mm. and there will be overlaps and depending on you know what gender you were assigned at birth and things like that but those experiences are different and and like you're saying as well about sexuality mm. you know in some environments it could serve you in a way because people will see you as like you're saying you know not not being a kind of conquest opportunity yeah. <laughs> but then in other environments um you may be really ostracized and mm-hmm. um, people may find it very hard to you know treat you with respect so um and and same if you don't conform to the gender you're assigned at birth so I think I think that's a very important point to make for sure and I think a point that doesn't get made enough and I think there's too many spaces that will kind of um just yeah just kind of say it's for women and gender minorities without enough consideration of actually being able to give space for different experiences Mm. I mean it's it's entirely intersectional like I mean if you know if we're gonna go like a step further the genre I work in is like an indie alternative pop and I practically work exclusively with white people and that's not Mm -hmm. intentional like that is just that that is those the pockets that like and I just think that that is like a huge, I mean, there's just so many ways that it needs to improve in leaps and bounds. And I think mm-hmm. that there has been massive movements in women in music. And that is through people through like nail and tooth 
fighting for that to yeah. be a thing and i think there are now new waves coming through that are going to you know bring the rest of everyone up with them and and were led by these women in music movements along with other things yeah. that were going along at the same time but i mean there's just so many changes that need to happen but i i'm quite an optimist i yeah. believe that they they are happening it's not i'm not like, in, like i think it's happening i think you yeah. can see it too i think it is i mean cuz i mean obviously i'm a bit older than you i'm like just over 10 years older than you and even back 10 years ago when i was 27 to voice publicly that you were a feminist in music was it was considered a kind of career ender mm. and even back further back than that 10 years before that to voice with your friends or to anyone that you're a feminist was hugely unfashionable mm. you know it's so different now it's so different now and and I, and there's so many wonderful you know grassroots organizations that have sprung up too doing some fantastic work and we're going to talk about one that you're involved in <laughs> in just a second Charlie but before we do move on to that I wanted to ask you um I remember when we first spoke you were saying you know I, I think it's really useful to talk about how to get work and keep work as a producer mm. so maybe you could give us some you know insight on that yeah definitely I mean I would say that there's a lot of focus on how to start a career or how to like get into those initial spaces but the reality is it doesn't matter if your foot is in the door if you leave the room <laughs> like you know afterwards if you don't realize what is required of you to stay in that space um and I would say like some of the some of the ways that you can stay relevant or keep your career going once you have got that first opportunity whatever and it's it's so simple but it's like I try reply to people as soon as I possibly can, or at least the initial response to something. Like if someone contacts me, I, I will reply as soon as I physically can, even just to say, when do you need to get that? When do you need the information from me? Or when do you need something to acknowledge that I'm the kind of person that is going to is gonna pay attention to what you're saying and I value what you're speaking to me about. But also it then gives you room for if that person says, oh, I actually don't need to, this. I don't need a response on this in a week. It's like, okay, fantastic. I now can reply to this and we can actually put it in my calendar because you might not have capacity in that moment to do the full reply to what they are asking of you. So I would say that's like um, a big a big thing. The other is to like always follow through on what you say you're going to do. Even if you realize that the project may not be as like relevant that you thought, at least if you if you finish it, it's good for your psyche to be like, oh, I did it. And also people can see that you do complete projects because one thing that's really annoying is working with slow producers on the output side as well like with mixes taking forever or oh they're never God, sending yes. you stems like yeah. I'm not gonna say I've never done it like <laughs> like yeah well yeah I mean yeah. stuff happens you know life happens that there is nothing more frustrating than collaborating with someone in whatever capacity including producer and you're waiting on stems mm. or you're waiting you can't on do the next tracks. step yeah oh yeah I can't even also like now I'm doing MDing and playback I and I, and if I'm working on tracks I haven't produced it is like murder waiting for the waiting for the person to send the stems through and I'm like I literally yeah. can't even start rehearsals because you haven't sent the stems like I didn't yeah. like so yeah, I, and like yeah. you say it's like keeping the co the, the contact open so if you know you're not something's not going to be deliverable yes that you're like oh I didn't realize but I need to email them and say this is going to take me another week is that okay mm -hmm. you know that yeah that's and it. then people just know and but the, the amount of times that 
yeah, I've I've had this conversation, you know, with so many people. Um, and like I said, it's not just production, it's lots of things. Just being really upfront, I think it's a very good mm-hmm. tip for people to, to kind of keep that work coming in. Yeah. Just being upfront with timeframes and deadlines and all that stuff. It, it it's so true. Also, I would say like an, I think I think transparency with that. Now, it doesn't mean that transparency. Say, for instance, you're experiencing a lot of imposter syndrome. Your client doesn't need to know that. If it feels like it's yeah. a natural thing to come up in conversation and you're relating over a topic, mm-hmm. then that's different. But they don't need to know that. But what they will need to know is if you feel like you can't reach a deadline or something. And in my in my experience, what I always try to do is always be providing a solution when I tell them something that can't be done. So if I feel like I can't get something done by a deadline, I'm like, but here is another person that can do it. Or like, this is, a, but I can't get it done by this, but I can do this instead. And so it's it's always just letting people know like that it's not the end of the world if around something that's happening. Mm-hmm. But the other, the other thing as well is I ended up landing on pretty big projects and stuff because I said yes. Mm-hmm. I said yes to stuff that I wasn't qualified for, but with a caveat, because it is a disadvantage to take on a job and do it badly. Yeah. So what I would do, I would take on projects, I would assess whether or not I was qualified enough for them or not. And if I felt like I wasn't, I would then outsource additional help for that project. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when I did the Laura Marling, uh, when I got asked to do the Laura Marling thing, I was not experienced, I'm still not experienced enough in Pro Tools because it's just not the software I use. I use Logic and now Ableton, but like mm-hmm. Pro Tools is still just not my pocket anyway the project had to be entirely done on pro tools and i was like i don't want to pass this opportunity off because i can't do this because i still think i'm a relevant person in this environment mm-hmm. so what i then did is contact my friend who would also benefit from this particular opportunity and said you're really good at pro tools but i've been offered this job to work with this big artist would you like to do this with me and we could do it as a collaboration and she was like yes and then both of us did it and now both of us have it on the cv and the job was done well you know yeah. like, it's there's no shame in asking for help like mm-hmm. on a project rather than messing it up <laughs> yeah and I think that's a really good tip because again I think for a lot of a lot of people who are you know who represent a minority and you know obviously for the premise of the podcast women and you know people that female assigned at birth and gender minorities I think that there's this real sense of well I've got to prove that I can do it Mm. I've got to prove that I can do it as well as any guy in that studio and therefore I can't ask for help I have to take all of this on and I think that's a really good point that you make that actually sometimes it's about finding those those collaborators that are going to enable you to keep progressing and keep taking opportunities and keep growing your career Mm. Uh, the network is is the thing Mm. and that uh, and it's just and I don't see it as like a corporate thing. I just think it's amazing. I feel like I have an incredible group of friends and colleagues around me that I only work with because I like them and they liked me. Like the friendship and the genuine solidarity between you and other people is what the network is, I think. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just like, I'm sure I know that you experience this because you're just like a G and you like run all these amazing (laughs) things. So, like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, well the thing is I, I haven't always you know and I think that's partly because because I, I felt very isolated as a woman in music you know mm. and I very isolated as a woman that was interested in technology and who wanted to produce myself and I don't think yeah I, I think it can be really hard I found that a lot of the time I, I wasn't in the network because of being a woman Mm. and um there's a really good academic who talks about uh, minority groups 
sort of researches this and she she says she has a term called space invaders mm-hmm. and yeah it's really it's really interesting and um and so she writes about what it is to be a space invader and to kind of take up space that is not really supposed to be for you or your body or your identity mm. and that's that was very dominant for a lot of my time in music and it's only been recently that I've been you know setting up these spaces for women to learn more about recording and production like doing the podcast that I've really started to feel that networking in in that really positive sense that you just described Charlie Mm. and I think before that it felt like this thing that I was I really didn't enjoy Mm. because I was always I was always feeling like people wanted me to be something that didn't 100% feel me yeah you know and um, people wanted me to toe the line to to play the usual role of a female musician and it just wasn't me and I think that like like you're saying you know there's so many different female experiences and my female experiences is, is that I am cisgendered and whenever I was in those very male environments it was like this funny mix of having incredibly low uh, confidence when it came to my my sexual attractiveness and all that stuff oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I look back at myself now and I'm like for god's sake Isabel <laughs> you know why did you think you were that grotesque like, oh that's you, tragic I know it's ridiculous but that again you know we're kind of swimming in this culture where women are constantly you know turning back in on themselves and so I was convinced that just because I wasn't like a size eight with humongous tits, <laughs> that I was grotesque. But at the same time, would still know that I was, you know, a conquest project. Like yeah. I was saying, you know, before that I yeah. was, I was in those environments as, oh, she has a hole that we need to, you know, <laughs> that we can tap. Yeah. Or um or because she has a hole that we could tap, we're gonna make her feel crap so she doesn't get ahead of herself. Or, you know, like just mm-hmm. stuff like that. Or I, I mean, I've been in the studio before where quite frankly, I I probably would have been just as good at, you know, recording in production in various ways, but I've been there as a singer. Mm. This is when I was a lot younger. And I, I remember the producer in the headphones saying to me, can you just, you know, perform it like just a bit more sexy, you know? And like this is such a typical thing that so many female vocalists have. And I'm like, oh Jesus Christ. Okay, what what exactly do you mean? Mm. You know? And they're describing it. And then the, they described it eventually as, you know, like you're a prostitute that's been out all night. Oh, and your voice is all crackly. And I was just in this vocal booth. I have to well, I will add, in the middle of Dartmoor. <laughs> on my own with these two oh, guys no. I mean, and this is what I mean by like sometimes the music industry can be really it, it can be difficult because it, it it you do get into these situations where you're maybe spending time with somebody 24 7 or you're very isolated and I think for a lot of women it can it can be tricky and so to come back to what you're saying originally I totally agree and I think I think that way of looking at networking is really healthy that you're creating almost like this kind of this collective of Mm. people that you can draw on and support and ask questions and feel like you're part of a family that's wonderful you I think it's it can sometimes take a long time to get to that place you know definitely I mean I'd say I've only really reached the the true feeling of that in the past few months like 
I've had yeah. people that I'd always work with. Like I definitely had like a collection of people that I'd work with and we would have like a really nice synergy where like if I couldn't work with a client, I'd pass it to them, they'd pass it to me, like everything like that. But I feel like, yeah, with the with the launch of this new collective, I feel like that really really solidified a lot of people in my life that I am like yes you are you are part of this and I'm part of your thing you know yeah so without further ado (laughs) can you please tell us about this fantastic new project thank you very much the build-up the build-up for this (laughs) it's gonna be really anticlimactic absolutely not (laughs) oh my god um but yes it's basically being my friend Max launched this collective called the Trans Creative Collective. It's something that we had wanted to do for quite a long time, but January of this year, we bit the bullet and we launched it and it has just had an absolutely incredible response and we are blown away by the amount of stuff that's happened. I feel like I've lived three years in the past eight weeks. Like I can't wow. even, it's been it's been a lot, but it's it's been really amazing. And a lot of what the TCC is, which is the Trans Creative Collective, is that we are a safe space for trans people and allies in in the arts, so that spans like basically every sector, to express themselves, collaborate and work with each other is the basic essence. And our whole thing is we are inclusive, not exclusive. So literally everyone of any ilk is, is welcome because our whole aim is to integrate everybody and not segregate anyone. Mm-hmm. So, um that's that's the catch line I guess (laughs) yeah yeah that's great well I mean maybe you could tell us like how did the idea come about and how did you get this off the ground well I mean the the concept of launching something like this um had been in mine and Max's brains for years because we've been friends for like oh my god maybe like maybe like eight years now possibly Oh, it can't be that long. Anyway, we've been friends for a time. We used to go to lots of women in music events. Just for context, Max is a trans guy. So, and he transitioned to trans man in during last year. So, or the year before last, but basically during the pandemic. And I also transitioned during the pandemic as well from woman to non-binary. So we've had that. And Max, for the whole time I'd ever known him, had been non-binary. So he taught me what being non-binary really meant like you know five years ago or whatever there were loads of amazing things such as like Red Bull Normal Not Novelty or like just women in music workshops and things like that which was so good and when they started to try be a bit more inclusive they would like tag on and non-binary onto it but as we've spoken already about this like I don't think people understand that there is a different life experience from a cis woman experience versus a non-binary life experience and grouping them together isn't always as helpful as maybe people think that they are mm-hmm. so we would go to these events and we would just be like oh god it would be, be really cool to see like a trans person or a non-binary person speaking on literally anything ever it doesn't even have to be a women's event just anything it would be cool to see representation and after quite a few years or even like years and months talking about this it got to a point where I like just turned to Max and I was like, you realize it's going to have to be you, right? Like, the only way we're going to see someone on these panels is if, if, if it's you. And I was, I hadn't come out at that point, and, and he was identifying as non-binary, and he was like, what? And then we were, we were thinking about it, and we were like, yeah, who else is going to do it? Like, we're the only ones we know. We're the only ones we've ever met that are gender non-conforming and work in the music industry and work on the level that we work at because we are, mm-hmm. we're both mm-hmm. full-time professionals doing it. Mm-hmm. So then we were just toying with the idea a lot. And then in um, 
March, must have been 2021, I got asked to do a talk for Abbey Road, which was amazing, for International Women's Day. At this point, I had already changed my pronouns to she, they, and changed my name. And I was a bit dubious about whether or not I should do it or not. But the reality is having an opportunity, like working with Abbey Road, is something that like I don't feel like I could pass up. And I mm-hmm. think it's also a very big undercurrent of why a lot of people don't transition or don't change their names is because I was worried that opportunities that had been so fought for in in women's sectors were going to be taken away from me now. And not only was I going to get discriminated against for not being a man, I was now also going to be denied opportunities because I wasn't a woman. And it's a really scary feeling to to do that. So I did the I did the talk and I ended up meeting the people at Abbey Road and, and getting on with them really, really well. But I, I actually like rang Max crying after I did the the did the interview. And I was like, I can't do this. Like it feels so wrong. And he was like, Don't worry, Charlie. It's um it's trans day of visibility in like two weeks. You know, like we can we can just do something together for that or whatever. And I was like, Yeah, okay. And then me being the person I am, I'm not sad for long. I don't sit around. I was like, <laughs> yeah, why don't we do something for trans day visibility? And I was like, Max, why don't we do a documentary? And why don't we do it with Abbey Road? <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, yeah, all right. So then I rang Abbey Road and we're like, yo, I had this idea. You've never done anything for trans day vis- visibility. Basically, no one ever has in the music no. sector. No. You could be like the pioneers doing this we could get um in a trans artist in an entirely trans crew film crew everything and then we can host it at abbey road and we can do a pod um, a thing like we did for the women's day but with a documentary and they were mm. like yes so then i had two weeks to plan this whole thing because it was like that's including the moment of when we came up with the idea to the moment that it needed to be released like you know so it needed to be edited and everything to get it done and all of us like pulled out the stops and we ended up working with Jesley Fay who was in the in the documentary and Nelly Rodriguez and we kind of like formed a group at that point just purely through doing this documentary and Andrea as well um who was the artist for it and we managed to do it we pulled wow. it through and on Trans Day Visibility, the documentary went live on the on Abbey Road uh, YouTube. We did this Q&A afterwards. And and for me, that was the moment I, I think that like the thought of doing a collective really like locked in because mm-hmm. looking at how many people who were presumably transgender, who were music producers and songwriters and engineers, had come to tune in to listen to us do a panel talk about what it's like to be working in the music industry and be transgender was just like, I've never seen this many trans people ever before in my life in one place. Like, so then during the talk, I like made an Excel spreadsheet up. And then I, at the end of it, I was like, so we have the super professional Excel spreadsheet that I totally didn't just make. Um, <laughs> if you could, if you want to, you don't have to, but if you would like to stay in touch with everyone else that you've just seen in the, in, who are also watching this, sign up. And so the directory was born and we were like, That's wow. Great. We have a directory. Mm. And as you know, it's having a mailing list of directory is an incredibly mm-hmm. huge and powerful thing. And and so then we, we spent about eight months developing the concept of a collective and really wanting to, we wanted to launch it and it be serious. We We had quite a strong idea of what we wanted and a big element of what we wanted was to be able to genuinely help people get to a professional level with what they were doing. Um, mm. you know, and to be able to step up a gear. We wanted to give job opportunities, we wanted to upskill people. And so then we did do our official launch and 
God, the reaction we got, the amount of people that reached out to us, the collaborations that we lined up with, like a lot of them aren't public yet because, you know, it was only January 3rd that this launched and we've already done huge collaborations. So we've got some big giveaways coming up with some major Mm -hmm. companies. So if you would like to follow the TCC, our Instagram is at the.tcc and you'll be able to find like stuff on there but yeah generally we're just putting on lots of projects a lot of collaborations which we just want everyone to be welcome to but obviously it is based around the trans experience Uh, that's kind of the core of what we're doing yeah that's wonderful I'm just wondering you know the name is the trans creator collective Mm -hmm. is it music specific or is just about the creative industries in general it's it's every creative industry so we have on our core team of five we have me and Max, who both work in music, and we have Pickles, who is the studio, one of the studio managers at that's Air Studios. Name. Such, that's actually their name. Like, <laughs> that's not even like a name change that name. Like, great. that's actually their name. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> wow. I know, that's so cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so we have Charlie, Max, Pickles, and Nelly, who was one of the original ones. And Nelly heads up the film production side of it. So we have like film and media. And then we have Colleen, who is like basically director of photography, does all the camera opping stuff. And then we are expanding more into the arts. But another sector, and the other sectors that we really want to get involved in, is it's all very well having loads of, you know, sporadic chaotic artists being friends with each other or like people who work in that side but you need managers you need lawyers you need A&Rs you need booking agents and that is another huge thing that we do it's it's an integration across the industry to try make this like this collective of people that all can help each other and really effectively help each other rather than over specializing in an an area but then Mm. we do do specialized workshops so for instance if you for instance we are doing one next weekend that is on playback with Tom Kane and Chrissy Lopez and they're just legends. So we do workshops to train people as well on specialized things. Well, I know that by the time this episode goes out, that will have already happened. Mm. But if people want to find out more about all the events and opportunities you have coming up, where should they go, Charlie? Our Instagram is the best one at the moment, but we have we are launching a website. I, it may be launched by the time this comes out, actually. But basically, we're the only ones called the the trans creative collective and you'll know it's us because everything is like like a tealy green and yellow that's like mm-hmm. our thing so but instagram's definitely the best one for now and yeah although you may not be able to i mean to be honest you couldn't attend that workshop even if it was a thing because it's sold out in four hours wow oh my god <laughs> right yeah so and um, we have quite a high popularity for the upcoming events but you'll be able to see future things that we put on and you definitely need to if you're interested in any of them you better <laughs> check out before they yeah. Out. yeah definitely that's really good I mean it sounds like there's been such a positive response and mm. and, and a real need for what you're doing mm. it, it it just feels oh it just feels like the most like purest like happiness I think I've ever had like mm. doing music with people and it's I'm not worried that someone's going to misgender me. I'm not worried someone's going to ask a question. I'm not worried someone's going to say something sexist or ableist or racist mm. or anything. It's like, and I'm not saying that's never going to happen because of course it will. Mm-hmm. But like you can, by default, you can assume that's not going to happen. And it's an outlier if it does, rather than when you're working in some of the other environments, it's the default that you're going to hear the rough stuff. And it's a yeah. nice thing if someone bucks that trend, you know? 
Yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, a lot of the feminist spaces, particularly the kind of female spaces are so attractive to a lot of women mm. because of that feeling of like, well, I know that most people in here are not going to be bringing that competitive macho hustling energy you know and so I can totally understand why the space that you're creating feels like that for trans artists yeah it just I mean I I kind of glossed over the first event that we did because we did one on the 5th of February and it was the creative social and just to summarize it basically we were just doing like an event that special that did an art gallery we did music reviews and we did a film section as well as a Q&A with various people from the community and then we did and then we had such popular so that sold out and the waiting list was as long as the amount of tickets that we had to sell in the first place so we had to put an after party we had to like last minute like come up with an after party that we did the first event at 1087 as well which is where my studio is but that oh my God, to have that many trans people or at least allies, you know, like that environment. Mm. Like I I know multiple people that came out at that event, you know, the first time they ever felt safe. And a big thing was like, you know, whatever, you can choose to let people know that you don't want to be called that outside of this room or you don't want Mm -hmm. to use that until you're ready. But it's something everyone was just going to respect that, you know, like, Mm. so, and we also had like the pronouns thing and you could also change your pronouns at any point during the night or you can change your name any point during the night, you know, and, and you just knew that if you did that, that would be celebrated. It wouldn't be criticized, yeah. you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's really important because it's it's having that safety, that space that genuinely feels safe. And I know that a safe space is like battered around all over the place mm-hmm. but to me that sounds like you know a really good example of that that p- people can feel safe to mm. not just be themselves but experiment with who they are yeah you know because you need to have those spaces yeah because you, you need to you need to kind of try things out before you really know mm. sometimes how you feel yeah I'm glad that you see it for what it is as well <laughs> oh good <laughs> yeah no I mean I think that's very important because um otherwise there's this idea that you have to just somehow in your own head come to this really fully formed opinion of right this is who I am this is my identity mm. but it's really important to have those spaces where you can try try that with people in yeah. a safe space where people are going to respect it and say well how does it feel when I change my pronouns you know mm. Yeah. I mean, the, a big thing that we want to do is just be able to create an environment that we were denied, you mm. know, like I even even I, I mean, I had friends that I told that I'd changed my pronouns of and during the pandemic was good because it meant that people, I wasn't seeing anyone. So I could really sit with that. Yeah. But like um, and that's where a lot of people uh, did actually transition was during the pandemic. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that because I've, I've known a couple of other people who've transitioned during the pandemic, too. Yeah, I'd say it would probably be one of the biggest world events ever that checked, that affected gender identity. Mm. Like, because you could just, you just have so much time to just think about yourself and think about who you are and how you interact with the world. And it's incredibly overwhelming. I don't think it was a particularly nice journey for yeah. anyone to go on, but it was an essential one. And yeah, like, it, I just feel honoured that me, Max and the rest of the team could create an environment where maybe people who had started to think about it during the pandemic, but we've all gone back into full swing, have a space that they could start trying out those things and have an air of safety and community. I mean, God, oh my God, I can't even, like, even just being gay was just like, I just felt so awkward. 
Like I felt yeah. like I was weird. Like, and and then to know that I was trans on top of that was just like I'm not going to open that door. But now yeah. to be like going to these events and it's like it's literally celebrated. Like, and it's fine if you're not as well. You're not going to get demonized if you're not, you know, or if you're still if you're still in the closet. Like that's mm. valid, you know. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely put links in the show notes to the TCC, but also to your website. So just to lastly, to just say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so wonderful to hear your story and to hear about all the incredible work that you're doing now. So thank you. Thank you. It feels such an honour to like get to chat to you with everything that you've done. And like you ask such good questions. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Charlie. I loved how open they were about their journey into music production, including some of the lucky moments and challenging elements too. And what an incredible journey into music production at such an early age. It's clear Charlie just had the production bug and couldn't help but throw everything they had at it, and it's obviously paid off. But I also thought Charlie's point about how important it is to acknowledge intersectionality within gender and music technology was really important. Sometimes in trying to include everyone, we can further ostracise those who still feel on the peripheries. If you'd like to find out more about Charlie's fantastic new project, the Trans Creative Collective, head to their Instagram page, which I've linked to in the show notes. There you can find out more about their upcoming events and opportunities, and as Charlie said, it's welcome to all trans creatives and allies alike. And if you're curious to find out more about Charlie's work, perhaps you now want them to produce your next album, head to charliedeacondavies.com. And remember, if you're ready to find your perfect vocal mic but don't fancy spending hours trawling the internet, you need to take my free 45-second quiz. Go to femalediymusician.com forward slash quiz and find out more. Right, we've come to the end of another episode, dear listener, but fear not because I'll be back next week with a special episode on signal chains. It feels like a natural follow-up to our chat with Charlie and is definitely something you need to be aware of when you're recording from home. So if you're curious as to what a signal chain is and how to make sure yours is set up correctly, join me in next week's episode. But till then, take care and I'll catch you here soon. Girls Twiddling Knobs is hosted and produced by me, Isabel Anderson, with production support from Jade Bailey. The show notes are compiled by Francesca O'Connor, and this is a female DIY musician production. So, how do you like that episode, dear listener? If you loved it, and you know someone else who would love it too, be a good friend and share it with them. Go on, spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.